You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, when I graduated from college, uh, I had a buddy that got a job right out of college. That was great. It was right in line with his major. It kind of fit with his gifts and passions. It was a great job. Everything's moving up and to the right. He's winning. So I was surprised a couple months later to see that he was no longer at that job, but he was now working in a warehouse loading boxes onto trucks for UPS, which is still a dignified job, but just a totally different class from the job he was in. So I asked him, like, what happened? Uh, And I remember he told me uh, at his previous job, he got in, was excited as he began to work for this company. Not long into it, they had uh, clients come into town. And so his boss told him, hey, these are some high-level clients for us. This is a big deal. They're in here town for some business meetings. But at night, they want to unwind. They want to party. So I need you to take them to a strip club, get them drunk, um, show them a wild time. And my friend, who was a believer in Jesus, said, I can't do that. Not, not out of judgment against you or them or anything. He just knew like, hey, the grace of God touched me and, and it's changed me and it's changed the way I interact with the world, the way I view sexuality, the way I treat women. And, and I, I, can't, I can't participate in that. But, but he tried to be accommodating. He was like, can I take him out to dinner? Maybe take him out to something else fun? Like, like I want to kind of excel at this, but I just can't go to that place. And his boss did not say like, well, I respect your religious convictions. How inspiring. His boss said, say What? Hey, man, take your small-town morality and stick it in your back pocket and get to the strip club. I don't care what you believe or think. Get this done. And he went, entered a weird crossroads where he said, I can't do that. So he got fired. And here, suddenly, a month later, he's throwing boxes in a warehouse for UPS. Integrity intact. But they're in a sweaty warehouse wondering, what just happened to me? What do you say to that guy? How do you comfort him? Uh, we had a girl in our ministry when I was a college minister. She came to faith in Jesus and was just so excited. Like, like the mistakes I've made and the guilt of them don't have to dominate my present or my future, but the, but the God of heaven loves me and waited for me to know him and I have a hope and a future. And she was so excited about the grace of God. She couldn't wait to go home and tell her parents about this new life she found. She thought to be, be so thrilled. And so she was shocked when she went home and told her parents all about the love of God made manifest in her life through Jesus. And they were not excited. They were offended. What, do you think we didn't raise you right? You think you're better than us now? And it was jarring for her. Wait, what happened? I I thought this was good news. Why did it suddenly make things weird with my family? Or when I was a high school minister, I remember this kid asked if he could meet with me and he wasn't part of my youth group, but, but he had heard the message of Jesus, didn't understand it, but it was convicting him. So he just called up a youth pastor and asked if I'd meet him at Olive Garden. And I was like, I guess. Like, when I got there, I was like, why are we at Olive Garden? He's like, I didn't know what youth pastors ate. And I'm like, okay, like really, really anything. But yeah, great. And so he was sitting there with a buddy of his and, and they were asking me about the gospel and I was explaining it to him. And, and one of them, you could tell it was really, he was like, man, I think I believe this. But as he was saying that, his buddy said, you know, if we tell our friends we like got religion, they will never invite us to parties again. And they instantly knew in the social sphere they're in, even though we're the same people and we'll be nice and all that, they just knew, hey, in this social sphere, they will quit hanging with us. And guess what? That happened. And so for the one of them that said, I want to know Jesus, his next several Friday nights, he spent those alone. What do you say to that guy? Congratulations, integrity intact, but look at what you lost. I remember for me, when I was a college student, I, I longed to 
travel Europe. I wanted to backpack Europe like a lot of my friends, but, but I had to get a job right out of college. And so I had to kill that dream. But then when I went into this youth ministry, my uncle, who was a stockbroker, uh, was in the top 10% in his company. So we got an all expense paid trip uh, to London and his wife didn't like to travel. So he brought me. And so I showed up there. And I remember when I showed up with him, it's a different game. We went to a five-star hotel. Uh, the Spice Girls were staying there at the time. It's kind of a big deal. I showed up to check in and they were like, are you Mr. Stewart? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, this is for you. And handed me a big envelope filled with cash. And I'm like, okay, all right. This is how we're doing it. And so for the rest of the time, we were being chauffeured around to five-star meals. I mean, I'm in the back passing people my age, like sleeping under monuments, all dirty, you know, like with their backpacks. And I'm like, roll up the windows, James. Kind of rolling past them <laughs> onto my glorious future. But I remember we went to this big party and at the party, like I had multiple people come up to me and they all led with the same joke. They're like, well, you look awful young to be a top 10 stockbroker. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not one. I said, uh, no, I'm here with my uncle. And I remember the first lady that said that to me, I said, no, I'm a youth pastor. I tell people about Jesus. And as soon as I said that, she went, huh. <laughs> and she walked, didn't even fake interest. Like, oh, that's interesting. She's just like, yeah, I'm not doing that here. And then another one did it. And again, and again. And then I realized, wow, wow, the most exciting thing in my life, allegiance to Jesus, could, could cost me. What do you say to that? How do you comfort someone like that? When, when, when this goal in my life, this beautiful thing becomes painful, I'm, I'm set apart by God and it's made me suffer? I've been made holy and it hurts? How do you make sense of that? It's interesting, Peter is gonna write this letter to a group of people who are going through that, people who had put their faith in Jesus and something was costing them. It was costing them socially, costing them financially, it was risking their lives and they're disoriented by it. Wait, I thought this was supposed to be good news. And here Peter's writing to them. And let me just say this, as we're looking at this book, Peter's the best person to write to him because he knew the fear of being rejected and he knew the pressure socially. I mean, you saw it when he was walking with Jesus as an apostle. He told Jesus on the night Jesus was to be betrayed, Jesus said, hey, they're gonna come arrest me. You guys are gonna scatter. And Peter was like, not me, Jesus. I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, now, now you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, when Jesus is arrested, He's hauled off into a court and you see Peter follows from a distance and suddenly he sees his entire social sphere mock his Messiah. And in that environment, a little girl comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you with him? Huh? Me? No, no, I don't know him. Sure. I thought I saw you with him. No, 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 no. I don't know him. No, I think you kind of sound like him. No, I'm not one of those people. And then the text says he started to curse again just to show him he's not one of those religious folks. And then not only did the rooster crow, the gospels tell us Jesus looked at Peter. And G Peter ran and he cried. He knew what it was to face rejection. And yet the Peter we read here, did you notice? He says, blessed be God. He's talking about joy, talking about rejoicing. You don't see a Peter buried in shame. I made the biggest mistake of my life. I rejected the Messiah and he was murdered and I'm a loser. He doesn't do that. The shame doesn't bury him. You see a Peter now that's confident and buoyant and joyful. He made it out the other side. And so here he looks at a people who suffers and we got the ideal guy to give them perspective on their pain. How do you navigate suffering for your allegiance to the Savior. Now, let me say this before I jump in. I know this is very specific. Some of you are like, I'm not being persecuted for my faith. I don't even believe any of this. Well, even if you don't, they've been a tough few years, have they not? All of us have been beat up a little bit. And I just want you to watch how Peter comforts the hurting because it just might comfort you too, right? 
So he tells them multiple times to rejoice, be joyful, praise God, even in the midst of their pain, the rejection they're feeling. And we're going to find three reasons why you would do that. And the first one I love is he lets them know right in the greeting, those first two verses, that your pain, your suffering, it didn't dislocate you. You're not suddenly lost on God's radar. Your pain is part of God's plan. There's a plan out there. And you see it even in the intro. He calls himself Peter. Now, his mama named him Simon. Jesus gave him the nickname Peter, right? Uh, which means rock. Simon the Rock Johnson, right? Uh, but Jesus said it in Aramaic, which was the language they spoke in Israel. In Aramaic, rock is kepha or uh, Cephas. Uh, when you translate it into Greek, which is the language of the broader culture, all the non-Jews out there in the world, uh, it was Petros or Peter, right? And so it's interesting that Peter here is writing to Gentiles, people who didn't have roots in the, in the biblical story that have suddenly come to faith in Jesus. He says, I'm Peter, and he chooses the name God gave me. Jesus called me this, and that's my identity. But then he uses the Greek translation of it to show I'm a rock, that's my identity, and I'm here for you. And what he did in my life, he wants to do too. You, I'm making this accessible in your own language because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means official emissary. I was a witness to Jesus' life and his sufferings and I understand their significance and have been sent by him to articulate them. So if you feel lost and dislocated because your pain, hey, he sent me you. God sees you. You're on heaven's radar. He sent the rock, the apostle, to speak to you. But then he spends more time even talking about who they are. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God's chosen people living as strangers and scattered. He does something interesting here that you may not pick up on right away. He, he takes three names that were historic names of God's people in the Old Testament, and he ties it to this crowd. And what he's letting them know is your pain can make you feel dislocated, disoriented, where am I? What is going on? Did God forget me? Why am I going through this? He sent me to DC. Why am I here? You can feel dislocated in the world. And he's letting you know, no, you're a part of something bigger. You're a part of a grand story. You are the elect. It's interesting. Well, before I get into that, let me say this. He, he, he's already pastoring them in the greeting. And, and what I love about that is he gives them some orientation. Now, I do this with my kids when we walk on that national mall. And ultimately, I'll look at him and say, hey, where are we? And they're like, I don't know. And I'll go, quick, where's the Washington Monument? There. Where's the Capitol? There. Where's the White House? There. Okay, where are you? Oh, I'm here. And I do that to help orient them based on these other things. Now I know where I am. And Peter looks at them and says, hey, your pain is disorienting. Suddenly you're taking shots and you're wondering, does God care? Does anyone care? Where am I? And he says, hey, let me orient you by your God, by broader society, and by the people of faith, both in history and even today. And he gives them these waypoints to orient them. And he says, you're elect. God chose you. Now, I understand there's some controversy around that name, that, that God chooses people. How do you understand that? And the, the answer is, yes, God chooses people all the time. You see Abraham in the Old Testament is worshiping little wooden gods. And, and the text says that God, God chose him out of the people uh, that he was with, moved him to the promised land, and said, hey, I'm choosing you on purpose, for a purpose, that you would be my blessing to the nations. He chose the nation of Israel. He said, hey, you're going to be my treasured possession for the sake of the nations. God does that. He selects people for his glory and for his purposes. He does that all the time. Some people turn that into a fight, how does that work? 
You're saying God chooses people who to rescue? Well, what about people's responsibility to make their own decisions? Well, this is not a thing, and it's sad because whenever you talk about being chosen or elect, for many people, that just becomes a philosophical argument when really, biblically, it's always presented as a comfort. And so you gotta think about people here who they're rejected by their society, they lost their inheritance, they're being persecuted, and he says, hey, the world may have rejected you, but God chose you. God cares about you. God came for you. He selected you. It's like getting engaged Somebody hit the knee and said, I want a relationship with you. It's meant to be a comfort to them. Now, how do the mechanics of it work? How does God choose people to be in his family, but we always make choices? How does that work? John Calvin said this. We must not suppose that there's a violent compulsion, as if God dragged them against their will. But in a wonderful and inconceivable manner, he regulates all the movements of men so they still have the exercise of their will. He says, hey, God moves all things. We're not at the whims of violent men. We are not at the whims of our own transient emotions. God rules all things. And yet somehow we make decisions. And they ask him how. And he says, it's inconceivable. John Calvin says something many Calvinists aren't willing to say. I don't know. I don't know how it works. But somehow it does. That we're a mess and he came for us and he rescues us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I'm sure if he chose me, he, he chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because I could never find any reason in myself why he would look on me with his special love. What's great is you don't earn the love of God. It's not for sale, but God in his mercy moves towards people. You're, you're the elect. But he says, man, you're not only chosen by God, and that's an encouraging thing, that inclusion to God's family has made you strange. And he says, you're the elect exiles. E exile is the word foreigner, power epididymos. There's the people, and you're alongside them. So you live in the community, but you're not really one of them. This election has made you an exile. Your association has disassociated with you. Your allegiance to Jesus has made you strange. And what I love about that is he's just affirming that to them. That, that's part of it, right? Uh, that you're feeling a little weird in your culture, and you are. Uh, that's the way the gospel works. I love the way one theologian said it. The gospel's at home in every culture, but it challenges every culture. Uh, Christianity's at home in every culture. It's not located within some region or a particular ethnic group or a particular language, even a particular style of worship. The message of the love of God through Jesus Christ goes past every ethnic and, and socioeconomic boundary. It spreads around the world that the gospel is at home in every culture, but it also challenges every culture. It can move into political cultures. It can move into skater cultures. It can move into all different cultures. And it'll say, man, God loves you right where you're at, but... It'll also challenge, but the way you're, you treat women, that has to change. Hey, the way you perceive sexuality, that, that's got to change. And, and it challenges people in every culture. And so here he says, hey, God moves right into your culture. You're out in Asia, Bithynia, all these different places, and God, the gospel will come right to you, but it'll also make you a little weird. Not needlessly so, not obnoxiously so. So I have to wear only Christian t-shirts, you know, that uh, this blood's for you. And you're like, ah, you know. But, but my allegiance to Jesus might make me a little odd. It separates me from the culture. What I love about that is he pulls the tension together. You're chosen. That's the language of inclusion. And you're in exile. That's the language of exclusion. You're the insider-outsider because of the gospel. My association when I got married to Donna changes the way I deal with other women. That doesn't mean I suddenly don't talk to women or don't look at them. There's a weird thing you can do with that. But I don't date them. 
Because that would be inappropriate. Because why? This new covenant has rearranged my association with the broader culture. It didn't remove me from the culture, but it made me move differently within it. And, and that's a way to illustrate what's happening here. Hey, you're not just randomly weird. God made you that way. You're the elect exiles of the dispersion. And I love that he calls them the dispersion there because in, again, he's linking them to their past in that. There's something to that. The word disperse means to scatter, but, but it was also a technical term in the Old Testament that you say, hey, you're actually connected to this bigger story. Uh, and he's been doing that this whole time. Elect exile, those are both words used of Abraham in the Old Testament. Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I'm one of them, so are you. It's the beginning of God's movement of salvation in the book of Genesis. You can see it on the map. Um, Abraham was living out here, worshiping wooden gods made of idols, and, and the God of heaven came to him and said, hey, I'm, I'm choosing you, and I wanna move you to a particular piece of real estate, and from there, you're gonna be a blessing to the whole world. And God chose Abraham and moved him and said, hey, I wanna bless every family through you. I'm choosing you on purpose, for a purpose. And it said he moved there and he was in exile. Not an exile to remove from the culture. I'm sticking you right in the middle of the culture, but you're gonna be a little different from them for their good. And then he became a, a, a nation. And remember, they were in slavery in Egypt and then Moses set them free into this area. But then as the Old Testament progresses, what happens? The people of God who are meant to be a kingdom of priests to the whole nation. God says, of all the nations, I've known you. And that known doesn't mean that he didn't know the other nations. Like, who are those guys? Like the Hittites, you made them. Come on, God. Like, no, it doesn't mean he didn't know them. Foreknowledge, like here, means God set his, his love on them. I have purpose for you. He said, of all the nations, I knew you. So you'd be a kingdom of priests to every other nation. So you would help these other nations know me. But they didn't do it. And they persisted in their disobedience. And God said, if you persist in it, I'll cast you out. And you see in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is destroyed and they're carried off all the way back to Babylon. And at that point, they're known as the dispersion. The people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, now scattered. Some of them went down to Egypt, like Jeremiah. Some of them were over here, like Daniel and Esther, a believer living in Babylon, working in a government culture that doesn't have an allegiance to the same God. How do you survive? Much of the Old Testament's there. And some of them were scattered in a bunch of different regional areas, right? And yet what's beautiful about that is even though they were scattered, God still used them. You look at the book of Daniel, and Daniel's not forgotten as he's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Is he weird? Yeah, but it's a good weird. It's a weird that actually helps Nebuchadnezzar, that blesses Nebuchadnezzar, that blesses the whole nation. And you see this scattering, though for them it was a sign of judgment, it was also a sign of mercy that God was using them to do something beautiful in the nations. Now, it's interesting in this book, Peter says, we're those in Babylon, but Babylon had been destroyed centuries before. But he's using it as a metaphor because Babylon was gone. But now thousands of years later, Rome is the ascendant power. And as Rome is in power, all these believers in Jesus are scattered. This is where they are. Pontus, Galatia, you're like, where are those? Uh, there. Uh, they're scattered around here. But he says, hey, you're just like these guys. You're not randomly lost. God didn't drop you and go, man, I, I lost a couple in Asia, but we're good. Let's keep going. No, you're part of the dispersion the way God's always used it. God's always had a people and he's always moving them. So think about that. These people have put their faith in Jesus and suddenly they're in a strange town and they're losing, losing socially, losing financially, losing in life. And yet God comes to them and says, hey, but you're not lost. I know you and I chose you according to the foreknowledge of God. I set my love on you by the sanctifying work of the spirit. That means I consecrated you, I set you aside that there was that moment where someone was preaching the gospel and maybe you'd heard it a hundred times but my spirit came to you and started tapping on your heart and saying, hey, he's talking to you. You're coming with me for obedience to Jesus Christ. That you say yes to his 
offer of grace. You say yes to belonging to him, that the spirit of God comes and sanctifies you, sets you apart to obedience to God and the sprinkling of blood, which I know is the weird part of the text. You're like, you lost me at blood sprinkling. I want you to obey me and I'm gonna sprinkle a little blood on you. Mm, No, you don't have to do that. No, I don't want you to do that. But again, he's tying them to the Old Testament that when God set his people free from Egypt to lead them back into the promised land under Moses, God brought them out into the desert and he read over them the covenant of God, be a binding relationship with him, not like a marriage. And then they took an innocent lamb and they shed its blood and they said, hey, this innocent blood is covering us. And they sprinkled it on the law and they sprinkled it on the people to show kind of like a marriage. I'm binding myself to you that someone innocent is paying with their blood for your sin and mine so you can be in relationship with God. So he takes that Old Testament image and he looks at these people who feel like all alone, maybe feel forgotten. He says, no, you're part of a big story throughout history. God's always been on the move and rescuing. It's always been difficult, but there's purpose and there's a plan so you can have rejoicing and praise even in the midst of pain. Why? Because you're part of a bigger story. You're not lost. You're part of a story that's playing out. God has a plan. And sometimes that's all you need to know. Life is not made unbearable by circumstances, Viktor Frankl said, who survived Auschwitz. He said, life is made unbearable by a lack of meaning and purpose. And here Peter hasn't left the intro and he's telling them, there's a purpose to your pain. There's a reason. You're like Harry Potter. It's not random. The loss of your parents, you staying with your mean aunt and uncle, that nasty scar, there's a purpose to this all. You had to be touched by evil. Why? So you could be the one to overcome it. You had to stay in those parents' house even though they were mean. Why? So you'd be humble and not be intolerable as you got older. To put something heroic in you. Your pain had a purpose. It's not all random. You're part of a bigger story. We're reading Lord of the Rings with my kids. And we just finished The Hobbit, which is an adorable little story. Little Hobbit Bilbo finds a ring, makes him invisible. So nice. (laughs) Now we're in Lord of the Rings and the kids are realizing, oh, that is not a normal ring. That is the ring of pure evil. And there is a whole bigger world and there's all these different nations playing out. And suddenly it's all these nations across history. And I don't know if you've read Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of detail. Basically every blade of grass in this entire world he created is described in detail. You're like, that's kind of a lot. I think I got it. But he keeps telling you the history of every rock and every tree and every blade of grass. Why? To let you know there's a bigger story playing out. And at the center of that story are some little bitty hobbits. They're so small. They're so insignificant. No one's ever heard of the Shire. And yet they find out some unseen force has purpose for them. And we're going to link you up with a king who's come in humility. And yet that king is going to journey through death and come out the other side to rescue us from evil with healing in his hands. You go, where does he get this kind of stuff? Right here. And he's calling little, weak, insignificant people to be a part of a big story. And as you read it, you feel that there's an epic story and I'm a part of it. And that's what Peter's presenting to them. You're not people lost in Asia. You're people called by God. You're not people who've been discarded. You've been selected. God has purpose for you. So is there pain? Yes, but there's always been. It's just part of getting the jersey. And yet you have hope and praise. Why? Because God, who is rich in mercy, caused you to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The same Jesus Christ who faced pain and punched through it is now using your life. There's a plan and you're a part of it. Now I want to unpack all of three through five because we did that at Easter, but he starts to tell them that you've been adopted into this family. You're part of a bigger story. You're part of a grand narrative. And so there's purpose and there's a plan for your life. And there's even a plan for your pain. It's not just that God has this big purpose in history. And you know, sometimes you get bumped up a little bit. Whoops, like God forgot, you know, and so you kind of got banged up or oops, we lost a couple. He says, no, God has a grand plan that you're a part of. And even your pain has purpose. 
That's what he says in verse six and seven. In this you rejoice, meaning the salvation of God, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I love the way he, he contextualizes their pain. What's, what's for a little while? It means they lost their house and, and their money and social acceptance and their job, like things that would feel pretty epic to us. He was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's grievous, inconvenient. But in this grand story, that's real pain. But then he says, you've done all this so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that it perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is worth praising even in our pain. Why? Because he has a big plan and you're invited into it. And you can praise God even in the midst of your pain. Why? Because not only can you know there's a plan, that there's purpose in your pain, that he uses it for his purposes. It's a refining process like gold, it says. When you refine gold, how do you do it? If you want to make gold pure, you heat it up. And as you heat up gold, the, the impurities bubble to the surface and can be scraped off. And for many of us, if I can be honest, that's, the pandemic's done that for you. There's grand purposes to it. We may not even know a fraction of them, but one of them for us that we can see is many of us, man, you maybe had set your hopes on transient things and you were putting so much energy and time and hope into things that can't bear the weight of your human soul. And so God had to heat us up to burn that to the surface and say, hey, this isn't worth it. I saw this with high school kids when I was a youth pastor, or excuse me, when I was a college minister. As I would minister on a college campus, you'd see that kid freshman year that would show up with his high school varsity letter jacket on because he had forged his identity as a high school senior and it was all emblazoned on that jacket. The bars from all my success, my cool nickname on the back, patches that claim my glory and they wear that thing that has given them an identity to college and nobody cares. Who cares what you did in high school? Nobody cares how special you think you are. And you'd watch these kids when they lost that significance, they lost themselves. I don't know who I am anymore. You go, yeah, God just took away a thing that you should not have given the weight of your identity. And for some of us, we cared about some things in our life that after a pandemic, we're like, yeah, that didn't matter that much. How many followers do I have on social media? All right, don't care. Yeah, sorry. I put so much significance in my bank account, in my title, in my job, in who knew me. And I'm realizing these things have value, but they can't carry the weight of a human soul. And the heat of the hardship has burned some impurity out of us. God, God has kicked away some crutches that couldn't support our life anyway. So we would put our feet on something more stable. He's testing us like gold to help us, to forge us. Uh, my kids and I, potentially just I, am obsessed with the show Forged in Fire. It's a competition where they make knives and it's, it's, they, they give these guys discarded dirty things like springs from beds or one time they give them steel wool and they just hand it to them and say, hey, in three hours, make that into a Bowie knife that can cut through bone. And you're like, what? It can't be done. And you watch these guys take like a canister and fill it with steel wool. And what do they do? They stick it in a furnace and they just heat it up till it melts. And then they pull it out and then they just start to beat on it. And then they heat it and hammer it and they heat it and they hammer it and they heat it. And then they, they hammer it. And they do that over and over again. And they take this useless thing and the heat and the hammer makes it strong and makes it sharp. Makes it able to endure and able to do something useful, durable and useful because of the heat and the hammer. And here Peter looks at them and says, that's what God's doing to you. 
you're somebody that maybe you have some use to you. There's some, there's some good iron in there, but it's been rusted over with all kinds of callousness. It's been dirtied up with all kinds of terrible decisions. And God says, man, I want to use your life. You have giftings that I want to exploit for the greatest of all causes. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to put you in the heat, man. I'm going to make you move to DC. And then I'm going to just pull out a hammer and just start hammering. I'm going to use your boss. I'm going to use your roommate. I'm going to use that random guy in the metro who's mean for no reason. I'm going to use that person who's honking at you. I'm going to use all this stuff that you're like, why God? He's like, I'll tell you why. Because I'm doing something in you. I'm making you strong and I'm making you sharp. I'm taking the gifts I put in you and I'm forging them for a purpose. What's the purpose? He says that the that your genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it's tested in the fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's so that your faith is set in something more solid and you trust God more and you love him more. But I love that the glory and praise there is not just yours, it's somebody else's too that God puts you in the heat and the hammer so that your pain could help somebody else praise. That's the imagery he's using there again in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were, they were believers of God who were scattered to Babylon and they were in Babylon and they said, hey, worship and bow before the king as a God. And they're like, he's not a God. Well, worship him as a God. I can't. We'll throw you into a furnace. Then that's what you're gonna have to do. And they threw him in a furnace that would melt gold, melt iron, melt steel, melt bronze, but it didn't melt these little believing kids. And as they stood there in the fire, the king calls them out and says, how did you survive that? And God was honored by the king of Babylon because the people of God suffered well. And some of you, I don't know all the reasons for your suffering, but he says here, man, man, it's a testing of your faith. It's a refining of it. It's a purifying of it, but it just might result in the praise and glory of honor of somebody else. Your pain has purpose. That God was moving history in this plan to rescue people. And your pain is a part of that plan. If you let it be. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked for an oil company. I lived in Houston. And so if you live in Houston, Texas, and you need an internship, it's going to be at an oil company. Uh, and mine was at Sanchez O'Brien. Uh, so I had a big hat with their initials on it, SOB. We're around. And uh, I remember while I was there, um, there, there was a guy that I'd like catch a ride with from work. It's an older guy. And while we were there, he... Uh, uh, every now and again would like disappear during the lunch hour. And, and then over time, like more and more people would as well. Like there was like one or two days a month where suddenly like the lunchroom was cleared out. And I found out after a while, oh, he had just sort of offered to people, uh, I do a Bible study like twice a month in the conference room. If you want to come, you can, it's no pressure, it's whatever. But I found out about it because I was in the lunchroom like by myself with this one like older lady. And I was like, where is everybody? And she went, I'll tell you where they are. They're in this Bible study because preacher man wants everyone to love Jesus. And she's just trashing this dude to me. And I'm like, okay, all right, just curious where they were. And, <laughs> and yet they come back afterwards and she's not done. She just is trashing this dude and your ridiculous Bible study and your ridiculous faith and all this. And she's just coming at him and he just laughs. He's like, oh, just kind of not letting it on the inside. And you could tell she saw that as a challenge to really try to hurt him at an emotional level. And uh, she would just say mean things. But he had this ability to just not take it in on the inside. And, and it escalated over time. And she would mock him and he'd never mock back. And it was like verbally, she was just punching him just, and trying to get him to punch back and he wouldn't do it. And then one day she wasn't at work and she wasn't there the next day and the next week and and we found out that she had, she had had an illness that was serious and, and it became questionable whether she would survive. But I remember we found out she's gonna live, she's gonna come back to work. 
And I remember the day she showed up. She was in a wheelchair, diminished physically. But waiting for her at the elevator was that guy. And he grabs her chair and he wheels her to her office. And he put her in there and he said, let's get this office fixed up. And he started to move her desk and move her stuff so, so it could be accessible for her. Put her books on different shelves. He'd get her food. He'd serve her. Just for weeks, I saw him just, just be kind. All that hurt and kindness comes back. And I watched that bitterness in her become a sweetness. That, that he was changing her. Why? It wasn't just that he was sweet. It's that he suffered and was sweet. She knew I trashed this guy and he's kind to me. That makes no sense, except maybe that God he has allegiance to is doing something in him because the circumstances don't make sense. And we saw a sweetness towards other and a fear of God enter her heart. How? Because of the suffering and the sweetness of this man. And don't miss that Peter looks at them and says, hey, God has a purpose so you can praise him. Even in the pain, you know there's a plan. He's been working it through history and he's working it through your story. And your pain even has a purpose if you let him. You may not know all the reasons why. You may not be able to see the tracings of his hand, but you can trust his heart. He's refining you. He's forging you, making you sharp and making you strong, making you useful so that there are people who will praise and glorify God as a result of your presence on the earth. That's our hope for this church, that people will take God seriously because of the way we treat them. And the last reason they praise in the midst of their pain is because they know that they'll prevail. He says, more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He looks at them and says, hey, this inheritance you have from God, it can't perish or spoil or fade. What he's done in your life races into eternity. That outcome is assured that we can praise God because we know we win at the end. Uh, it's interesting, when I was in college, we, um, I, I joined a paintball tournament. Shoot paintballs at each other, try to win on different teams. And as we got towards the end of the bracket, I was on a team from a certain organization and we were about to face off with guys from our same organization and whoever won would be in the finals. It's a little weird. You know, I'm gonna have to shoot some brothers of mine to, to get to the top. But I remember as we showed up at that game, these guys came and they were all older and they said, hey, uh, we're about to face off to see who goes to the finals, but uh, here's the deal. Uh, we all have girlfriends and we don't wanna do this anymore. So however this game plays out, you guys win. We were like, what? They said, you heard us, we're gonna play, but no matter what happens, you can't lose. Now, knowing the end was sure, did not steal our motivation. We weren't like, well, then why even play? We were like, we can't lose. Okay, so I don't need to hide. I don't need a barricade. I don't need to walk. I don't need to hide. I can leap. We became like a John Wick movie, leaping out of boundaries, shooting from the hip, very irresponsible things <laughs> because we knew victory is mine so I can be bold in the present. And here Peter's looking at this beat up little crowd and says, don't be discouraged. God has a plan through history. You're part of it. You're not alone. You're part of a grand story. He has purpose even in your pain and you can't lose. You can't lose. So you praise God in the midst of the pain. He's got purpose for you. Back in London, I got rejected a lot. And uh, I remember as that trip went on, 
I wasn't trying to be needlessly offensive with the gospel, but less and less people would talk to me. And I remember by the end of that first dinner, I had told a few people, I'd tell people about Jesus, and they'd walked away when I told them that. So the last woman who came up to me that night said, uh, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work with young people. And she was like, that's so great. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well, let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. And suddenly I made a friend. All I had to do was drop Jesus off. And I felt bad about it. And so I went to the bar in the hotel and I was reading the book I brought, which was The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who led the Christian movement against Hitler. And I was like, okay, man. So I thought, God, I'm not gonna be needlessly offensive, but I don't wanna be ashamed of Jesus, I don't. And so the rest of the trip, I, I would hang out, was kind of people friendly, and, and uh, some people wanted to hang out with me, a lot of them didn't. One couple came up to me that were believers in Jesus, and they were crying, talking about how precious he is to them. It was a really encouraging meeting. But I remember at the last night, there was a dinner at the very end, and at the dinner, they, they had brought this, this group out that was doing like the major musical movements from uh, different shows and performances. So there's this huge performance, this big meal. Everyone's hanging out, telling stories of all the fun they had in the trip. And I remember when they were there, everyone's mixing in, telling stories, and I was sitting by myself. And I was sitting there by myself, and this woman came up and just shot into the seat next to me. She was like, <gasps> your uncle told me what you do. She said, who do you tell people you work for? Are you like, uh, God? Like, where do you get your paycheck from? Uh, God? And I was like, yeah, I do. She's like, really? I'm like, no, that would be so weird. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, that's just so crazy. And it turns out she wasn't a stockbroker either. She was kind of an artist, lived in New Orleans. And I remember she was just like, I'm here with my friend and I heard about what you did. This is so crazy. She was like, because guess what? I just got spiritual. I've been going to a spiritual leader. He's been telling me all about how God is like, there's a mountain and God's at the top of the mountain. There's a bunch of roads to God and it doesn't matter which one you take because they all get to him. So you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. Some people believe in Jesus. Some people believe in nothing. Some people do good stuff. Some people do terrible stuff. It doesn't really matter. We'll all get to him and we're all going to get there. Isn't that great? And the more she's saying this, I'm like, oh God. And I remember she got done with the mountain speech and I was like, I, I hate to say this, but I, I totally disagree with you. Which I just thought would be a conversation killer, like, and thanks for coming, you know? But she was like, what? And I said, I, I believe that this is the word of God. And so I believe it's telling the true story of what God's done on our behalf. And he said, I sent Jesus Christ, the son of God to live the perfect life we couldn't, and then to die the death we deserved, for there to be justice in the universe. Someone has to pay for all the injustice that's, that we're choking on. And he did. And we were so bad, only God himself could come save us. But we were so loved that he did. So I don't think there's a lot of different ways. I think there's one way. It's not like, will you be a good person? You think that, or the brutal murder of Jesus Christ. Like, no, no, it wouldn't be good for God to make that an option. That's the play. There's one mediator between the God and man. It's, it's the God, man, Jesus Christ. And, and all my hope is in that man. And I just kind of laid it out and was like, well, see, see you later. And I remember she was like, explain that to me again. And I did not expect that. So I was like, um, 
okay, so it's like uh, Jesus and he's really cool and I love him so much. And I was like, I don't know what to say next. So I'm just saying stuff. And she kept asking questions about the gospel and we kept talking about it. And I remember at one point I just told her, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. And as soon as I said that, uh, the band who I'd forgotten about, this whole orchestra, all these singers kind of hit this crescendo musically. So I was like, at the end of the day, it's about Jesus. And as soon as I said that, it was like, oh, like all the lights lit up and all the music hit. And she just went, do you know what that was? I said, no. And she said, that was from Jesus Christ, superstar. <laughs> I was like, it's a sign. Repent. The kingdom is here. <laughs> and I'll never forget, she said, someone left a Bible in my hotel room. And I was like, was it Gideon? She was like, yes. She was like, I'm going to go get it. And I want you to show me what you're talking about. And we sat in the lobby of that hotel and we just opened up the Bible and we talked about Jesus. And I thought about all that it, it cost me to associate with him. But to sit there with this woman and her honest questions and to go back and forth and, and not be weirdly different, but be different, yeah. was actually for her good and for mine. Right. Yeah. And God looks at the believers and says, hey, you don't earn your way into heaven. It's not for sale. But God chose you, Christ loved you, he came for you, the spirit called you, the whole trinity moving on your behalf to bring you alive. And you're part of a grand story. And there's pain in that story, but you praise God in the midst of it because there's a plan you can trust and even your purpose or your pain has purpose. And then in the end, we prevail. And God just might use you and your gifts and your life to help other people praise and glory and enjoy Jesus on the day of his revelation. You want that story and you're invited into that story. So you take heart. Life is hard, but God is good. Do you know him? You're made to. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.